iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Thanks for coming, everybody. Please welcome from IndieWire our moderator tonight, uh, Gene Hernandez. And filmmaker. It's right there. Filmmaker uh, Lynn Shelton and the actress Mark Duplass and Joshua Leonard. Let's hear it for him. Hi. All right, thank you. Do not lean back, Lynn. Okay. Chicka, chicka. Um, Can I get a cup of coffee and a USB cable? <laughs> thank you. This event is being podcast on iTunes, so we're not only speaking to the folks in the audience today, but those who will be listening on their Apple devices. Can we say bad words? I think you can say whatever you want. Guys, we're good? There's a 30 second delay. Brad? Okay. Brad says yes. Are there any children in it's the audience? It's a hesitant yes, but I'll take it. <laughs> Are there any fucking toddlers? <laughs> any of them? That was gratuitous. We're off to a good start. Um, the last time I saw these folks, uh, they were in France at the Cannes Film Festival. This film, Hump Day, uh, debuted at Sundance, was quickly acquired for distribution. It's opening in July, July 10th. And then it subsequently went to the Cannes Film Festival, and I think since then you've been making the festival rounds. Is that right? Uh, yes. It was at LAFF, which you guys attended, and I did not. Vegas, which I also missed. Um, but I just got back from Edinburgh, and um, it was also at the BAM Cinema Fest. It'll be at Rooftop Film Screening tomorrow. Tomorrow night, night Rooftop Films. Varick Street. Yes. Um, and yeah, there's been other ones too. You went to Provincetown, right? I never got to hear that story, but um, South and South by Southwest, and yeah, a bunch. So I'm curious to know how the film plays differently in different markets, if it does. Um, what, what do you notice about the way the film is received? We'll talk about a bit more about the, what the film's about in a moment. You got a teaser of it in the trailer, but um, I so far, from my ex personal experience. Uh, Brooklyn was the loudest and most, it seems to be our hood. <laughs> Brooklyn is our hood. I love Brooklyn. Um, it's like the perfect demographic for the film. And Edinburgh was very quiet. They, they laughed, but they were much stingier. And I was told that it's because the Brits are polite, or they're not even Brits, they're Scots. They're Edinburghians, specifically. Um, but uh, I, I'm told they're a very tough audience, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't feel, shouldn't mean anything. But uh, yeah, so that's what I've noticed. But everybody laughs, at least you know, to some degree. You say that uh, Brooklyn is the audience for the film. What, what, who do you consider the audience for the film? Who do you think is sort of the, 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 the key demographic? I'm going to let you guys. Anybody that. with a heart. <laughs> Good answer. A yeah. Heart. I mean, the thing is that the film really is, it really has a broad, sweeping, um, I think it has a lot of audiences. I'd say that if, there, if I had to choose a target audience, I really think it's about and for straight guys. I really do. And they may be the, the fewest people in the audience, because if they smell any whiff of gayness when they see two guys bare-chested looking at each other like that, they'll think... They'll go running, you know, and screaming. So I think word of mouth and critical. Why is that gay? Well, I don't. What's what's the problem with that? 
yeah, there is no problem. That's the point. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so getting those guys in, into the audience and the ones that actually come and see it, love it. They seem to love it from my, what they've told me. The haters may not be coming to me, you know, telling me how much they hate it, but, the, but boy, there seem to be a lot who love it. But the gay men seem to love to it. Me. The haters are all going to Josh. Um, gay men seem to really love it. Um, lesbians seem to love it. Uh, straight women love it. They, they, I think they really, re- especially because the character of the wife lets them in. And, uh, and if anybody, have, any one of them have ever had a boyfriend or a, a husband, they, they seem to appreciate it as well. So it, it does seem to... So let's come back in a moment to the, different, the way different audiences respond to the film. And, but give us the... Tell us about the film by telling us how you pitched it to, to these guys or, or when you were first coming up with the, con- with the concept. Yeah. What was the original idea? I wanted to Use work that with, as a way to get I wanted, into that. Yeah, I wanted to work with Mark Duplass. Um, my last two films, this is my third feature film, and my first was made in a very traditional way. And my second, I decided I wanted to start with people I wanted to work with and come to them and pitch them an idea and a character and, and we'd sort of develop it organically from there. And the Hump Day is the same. And so Mark was the starting point. I really wanted to work with him. And um, uh, Why did you want to work? Sorry? Why? Mark, Mark and I do met... Do you really have to ask, Eugene? Come on. <laughs> I really <laughs> Come on, do, Just Mark. look at him. Um, Mark and I had met on the set of uh, another feature film called True Adolescence. I was the still, one of the still photographers on set, and Mark was the leading actor. And uh, it was shooting in Seattle, and so it brought Mark to Seattle. And... Uh, we bonded pretty quickly as filmmakers. Mark is half of the Duplass brothers, and they also make films. And um, we have a lot. There's a lot of overlap in the way that we approach filmmaking and work with actors. Um, so we bonded that way. And then I watched him acting firsthand, and was very inspired by what I saw. Um, he was exactly the kind of actor I want to work with. Very elastic and loose, and um, authentic and generous with the people that he's working with in every scene. And you know, so. Um, I was trying to think of a scenario uh, and, uh, char- and characters, and what I like to do is bring, a, bring an idea when it's still a very loose premise so that um, the actors can be very active in the development of their own characters. And then as I get to know the characters, I can then figure out what's gonna happen in each scene because I know how they're gonna interact, how they're gonna behave. So the way I pitched it to Mark was, Basically, uh, I want to make a movie where, wherein two straight male friends decide that they have to try and have sex together. Basically. And, and you want to know how Mark pitched it to me? Mark pitched it to me. Uh, hey, dude, do you want to play my best friend in a movie? The director's really cool. <laughs> and he said, yes. And then I said, what's it about? <laughs> and then I proceeded to... Uh, to tell him the plot that I guess that Lynn and I had developed, which is uh, as the movie is now, which is it's it's two straight guys who decide they're going to have sex with each other on film for an art project, uh, and it's uh, part of a festival called Hump Fest. That it's a real festival in Seattle. That you know it's just a 24-hour porn film festival, and they make porn and watch them and burn the tapes. Um, and so I I withheld that information from Josh until he said yes. Uh, <laughs> and then he quickly sent me an email and said, remind me never to sign on to a project with you before you tell me what the actual plot is ever again. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, when, when, when Lynn brought me the idea, I mean, I was immediately very excited by um, the fact that we would be taking the naturalistic approach to a sort of far out non-naturalistic idea and, and, the, and the goal of this movie was is sort of to take a risk we'd make it cheaply, we'd make it quickly if we messed it up you know what, no one really has to know about it because we're doing this up in Seattle on our own you know? but if we really can make this work it would be amazing and to not make this a farce you know, but to really make it something human and <laughs> funny that you can understand how guys would be so lost so competitive, so jealous of each other and so misguided um, in their, you know, quarter-life crisis that they think that this is really a good idea that's going to serve not only our relationship, but, you know, help to, you know, really just solve some of the problems we're facing in our, in our lives. And that was, that was very exciting to me to take that risk. Well, and as, and as many of those um, kernels of ideas began, this one began with uh, heavy drinking at a party. Um, yes. Well, in a very specific party, I wanted to I wanted to create a context in which uh, so an idea like this would be I'm totally normalized. I'm setting up normalized. a clip. So tell us, tell us. Oh, awesome. which, This is the party scene. <laughs> we got to get better okay. at this whole interview this is the party thing. Scene. Yeah. Here's a clip, guys. Here's a clip, uh, guys. But, but it, go, it connects with what you were just. About um, to say. Yeah. So it's a, I wanted to create a, a scene in which it would be totally normal that um, that an idea like this would come about, and in fact, applauded. You know that it would be like not only normal but like. Wow, that kicks ass! Yeah. And you know that probably wouldn't have happened in the living room of Anne and Ben's house um, or the people they normally hang out with. But in this particular bohemian, sex-positive, Burning Man artist commune, it's like totally, yeah. So Mark's in a relationship. His friend is visiting. Right. Oh, so they Mar- go to a party. So Mark is in a relationship. Uh, he he is in a marriage, and they're he and his wife are trying to get pregnant. Um, they own a house. He has a job. Um, Ten years ago, these two were in college together, and they were much more the same kind of sort of guys, and they just sort of were joined at the hip and ran around and had adventures together. But now, Mark sort of settled down. Um, Mark's character, Ben, has settled down. Joshua's character, um, Andrew, has continued to dive into that bohemian um, sort of nomadic artistic lifestyle where he's globetrotting and um, being an artiste. So he just shows up on the doorstep of Anna and Ben's house one night, and the very next night, within 24 hours, he has um, brought Ben to this crazy house. So let's take a look at the first clip from Hump Day. This is what we're doing. What are we doing? You and me. <laughs> Two straight dudes. Uh-huh. Straight balling. Beyond Dude. gay. <laughs> beyond gay. It's yeah. beyond gay. I know oh, you're like, you God. know, a joke, but I mean, if you will film realizing this incredible way to express your love for your longtime friend. Tender. I, tender is the butt. I, I, is. I will bow down and give you the trophy. It's that would be an incredible piece of art. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, Trina. So tell us a bit more about just from a production point of view. Where'd you shoot the movie? When did you shoot it? Uh, I'm sure there are filmmakers in the audience or listening on iTunes who may just want to hear some of the basics of 
you know, the, the obvious questions you get at festival Q&A is how many days, how did you shoot it, what format, that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a firm believer in uh, writing for the resources you have at your disposal. And um, we shot this film in 10 days. I had these guys, if, if the schedule had been any longer, I couldn't have done it because um, I only had these guys for about two weeks 12 days, actually, total, they came up to Seattle, which is where I live. So we shot it in Seattle. They live in L.A., but they came on up. Um, I put them up in my dad's house. He was, I believe, hiking across Bhutan, if you can imagine it at the same time. That comes up in the film. Anyway, um, by happenstance. So, uh, and we shot on two Panasonic HVX 200s on P2 cards um, in the 720p format. Uh, and we edited on Final Cut Pro, and we had uh, backup. We had two drives, uh, two like one terabyte drives, um, to back up the media immediately before we wiped each P2 card. Um, and then, uh, what else? Uh, yeah, I mean, I just a little side note about the way that we were able to do it so cheaply was not only was it a, a short schedule, but it was also very few people on set. Um, and it was, you know, resources that I had at my disposal. So I, I, a friend of mine donated his house to us for two weeks, and we just used it as Anna and Ben's house. My first AD um, donated her house for the Dionysus scene, and then there was... So there weren't a lot of locations to begin with, um, and they were all very easy to acquire, um, cheap or free to acquire. Um, and then a lot of people in lieu of cash took points in the film. So everybody who worked, was on set got a, a chunk of the film. So recapping, I mean, your advice would be to other independent filmmakers, use the resources you have around you, um, yeah. try to keep it as low budget as possible. I cut out the scene with the elephant <laughs> and the hot air balloon. <laughs> you know, seriously, it's like... Here, Lynn, I'll, I'll bail you out of this one. I mean, I think, Mark, seriously, I think you could speak to this as well. And I'm picking up on this idea of, you know, sort of guidance or advice you'd give to indie filmmakers. I mean, and, and folks, if they haven't seen your, your previous work, they should. The films that you got, you they definitely should. have yeah. directed. Yeah. <laughs> Puffy chair, baghead. Um, but, I mean, it seems like that's sort of, for, that, for this stage of your career that you've been in recently, at least... Um, you've employed a very similar approach. Yeah, there's a very similar aesthetic that Lynn and my brother and I share um, in terms of, a, you know, a, a very just a DIY mentality and shooting things on, you know, sort of handheld digital video or HD cameras and keeping things cheap. You know, I don't want to overstress that that's like the only or best way necessarily for young filmmakers to make their movies. It 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 has to be content appropriate. You know, is is the way I like to describe it, and that. If you really are that filmmaker who you know wants to be making Days of Heaven type things, like don't do that on you know like you know cheaply. It's just not going to look good, you know. But if you want to do what we're doing, which is interpersonal dynamics and human comedies and human dramas, and and you know if if the focus of what you want to do is story and and acting, um, then this really is the perfect way to do it. It it is you know. Get your friends together, keep your crews small, and you know, you know, work in, with digital video and use the Final Cut Pro system on your laptop, and you know, in general, make a lot of stuff for cheap because usually your first things are gonna suck. And in my opinion, that's kind of what happens. So our thing is like make five-minute shorts, make a bunch of them, make them cost only thirty dollars because you're borrowing equipment, 
and then it won't be so painful when you mess those up and then eventually you know you can go out and make your movie when you find out what you uniquely have to offer because there will be good things that come out of them yeah you'll learn some things you know and my brother and I made the mistake of making some expensive movies early on and it really hurt us and it it, it was hard to get back up on the horse you know so I I really I think cheap failures are are, you know essential Um, and then that way you know you when you're ready to get up and, and make your feature, you'll you kind of know what you are good at. Mm-hmm. I, I also think a huge part of this is is about surrounding yourself with a community of of like-minded people and and really, you know, being as willing. If you're going to ask people to kind of show up for free and and uh, bring their A game, to to really be willing to do the same, to kind of subordinate the ego entirely and support your filmmaker friends as much as they're willing to support you. Yeah, because if you don't know what you're doing, maybe someone else will, which is good. <laughs> and I, I believe in that. Well, I found that, um, you know, I'm a control freak, so it's, it's, it's difficult. It was difficult for me to come to such a completely collaborative way of working. But I found that the more collaborative I've become, the, more, the better the end product. And I found that the two places where I really do... Um, exhibit my control is in choosing exactly the right people to surround myself with, not only the cast, but the crew as well. Everybody is very carefully handpicked, and it's a very intimate experience. So if one person is off, it's going to throw the whole balance off. And then if you do pick the right people, you can give them your trust. You can give them that full invitation to be collaborators, and they will then have ownership of the project like you, and they'll be able to... um, they'll bring more, you know, and they'll bring their game, basically. Um, and then the other place I exert my control is in the edit room. And having a background as an editor um, is really kind of essential, I think, for this particular process because I'm giving them a structured outline to work with. They, they improvise all of the dialogue, and then I um, am watching as an editor to make sure I have the ingredients that I can then um, find it in the edit room later. Let me pick up on that, your background as an editor. Let me pick up on just asking you about your background. Um, for those who are listening and watching, um, where did you come from? How did you know you wanted to make movies? When did you make that decision? What steps did you take? I was really, I've always loved film and I, and I actually considered applying to grad school in film when I was in my uh, early 20s. I applied to acting grad school instead. I had a history, I started acting when I was like 11 and I acted in the theater for many, many years. Um, and then I ultimately decided to just move to, I didn't, I got waitlisted at NYU in their acting program, but I moved to New York anyway to do theater. And I was too intimidated to, to go to film school. All I knew was I loved film, but I knew that it cost millions of dollars and that I would be, as a director, responsible for somebody else's millions of dollars. It just, it just terrified me. And, uh, and so I couldn't visualize it. And what I ended up doing was, when I did go to grad school, I went to grad school in photography because I'd sort of switched over from acting to photography. And I went to the School of Visual Arts here in Manhattan um, in their photography and related media program. Uh, and I took a video workshop and never, and never turned back. And I started making experimental films and video art and experimental documentaries. And I could do, all, I could do everything myself. I could shoot everything edit everything, sound design, do it all. And then the one marketable skill I had when coming out of school was, was editor, um, editing, digital video editing, which was relatively new at the time. And so I was editing other people's work. And those two things, you know, sort of being able to um, figure out how to express myself creatively as an ex- just ex- art maker, um, but also edit other people's um, narrative work, you know, more traditional work really helped me figure out how to tell stories cinematically. 
What would you say are the um, essentials that if someone is interested in pursuing editing or a career in editing or wants to become a better editor, what kind of guidance would you give them or what kind of tips would you offer to sort of better yourself as an editor? Well, having taught editing classes for many years, um, I think one of my favorite exercises to give my students is that I have them deconstruct a scene and I, and I have them watch go through a number of things that require them to watch this scene like 20 times. And they just start by counting the shots so that they notice the edits. And then they break down what the you know, field of view of every shot is and what the change of angle the camera took you know, between, um, between shots, how long the shots are, um, are there any camera movements, just every single possible technical detail to really look at how did the, um, the form um, actually support the dramatic action of that scene. So both the camera work and the editing together, how do those things function to, to actually support what's going on emotionally or, or dramatically? Um, which as, as audience members, we're kind of zombies and we turn into, the, we just are, if the movie's working, we're pulled in and we're not really paying attention to those details. So you really have to learn to be a technician and to, and to break it down. I find that to be very helpful. We're going to watch another clip. Um, give us a couple of clues. This is the, this is the um, scene on the porch. So it's the day after the party scene we just saw. This is, yeah, this is the and scene that if it hadn't worked, the whole movie would have collapsed. Because so they, a, the, we, the scene you saw before, they've actually brought up the idea of this ridiculous concept of making a, a, a porn film together starring each other. Um, the next morning, they... They get, they, I don't know how much of the scene we're going to see, but they basically try to get out of it. I mean, they say, you know, oh, that was crazy last night. Boy, oh, you know, that was, what was, I don't know what was going on there. And they seem like they're going to get out of it. But they try to do that by letting the other person off the hook. And the other person won't be let off the hook because that would mean that they're pussing out. So they end up boxing themselves in because they're too macho to not do it. And, and as, a, as a filmmaker, as a director... And as an editor, what, what were some of the things that you were going for with the construction of this scene so that when we watch it, we can sort of look out for some of the things that you were... You were talking a minute, a minute ago about how important, not only how important the scene was, but um, how you may not necessarily notice the camera work and the, and the editing in a scene. Let's try to notice it in this case. Uh, what were you sort of... What were you thinking about as you were preparing this, this shooting this scene and then cutting it together? I mean, with, with the entire, all the shooting, when you watch the movie, you'll see a lot of close-ups and a lot of at least mid-shots. It's a very, for me, I, I mean, I love the human face in general, and I love these guys' faces even more than other people's faces, because the nuances of the expressions, you know, the little, all of the, the subtext that you see in the eye movements and head shakes, and I find that to be really where the story is taking place. So, I mean... I'm very sort of Peter Weir in that way. I mean, in this movie, there's a lot of close-ups. So, um, yeah, that, I would say that's the main thing. All right, so let's take a look at scene number two from Hump Day. Like, we've got really different lives now. It's true. And, and I get that in the paradigm in which you live, these weird conversations are not things that are really appropriate and that, uh, you know, that I don't, I don't think any less of you for it, that... You know that. Uh, well, first of all, let's just like take the take this down just a second. 
you're not as Kerouac as you think you are, even though you've got the headband on, and I'm not as white picket fence as you think I am, okay? Like, the black and whites in which you're thinking this is a little bit extreme, okay? Tiny bite. Tiny bite. Don't want to give away too much, because the movie opens July 10th. That's right. In theaters. Angelica Film Center here in New York. Um, Joshua and Mark. Lynn's talking about the way she was shooting the film. She's talking about the making of the film. Um, tell me about the process you guys went through, whether it was working together, working with Lynn, working on your own, um, to develop your characters and how you would portray them. You can, you can focus on this scene, you can focus on another scene, or you could just focus on your overall work in the film. Just curious how was, you guys it, went it about it. was pretty much... It was... Um, you know, given given that the setup for a film is is you know predominantly about artifice, I, I think this was the most organic process to get there that I've ever experienced. Um, because we were all talking about the idea probably four to five months before we actually shot it. Um, there was no since since Lynn kind of came in with. A notion of how these how these two guys kind of juxtaposed against each other, but not so much uh, the specifics of what their lives were. We had a tremendous opportunity to develop those characters ourselves and to kind of bounce ideas off one another and to, to figure out what um, what what kind of recipe was was going to match up for the right amount of. Uh, to, to believe that these guys had had a pre-existing friendship, but also believe that, you know, it, it would be a, it would be kind of an explosive conflict if, if you put them in the right uh, pressure cooker situation. Um, but you know, when, when when you're doing a movie that's predominantly improved, you're you're trying to stick to things that are within the realm of your own life um, you know a lot of stuff for the Andrew character I like to at least think that I was pulling from earlier days from you know my early 20s um, but but still things that I grabbed late 20s early 30s okay last week (laughs) earlier today right up until I shaved the beard Mm. But um, but but it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't like there was a tremendous amount of research. I wasn't reading books. I wasn't watching movies. Mark and I would hang out. You know, he'd have a barbecue over at his house. We'd shoot the shit for a couple hours about things that we could do. We'd do an eye chat with Lynn um, and talk about other ideas. And then we were on set, and we all had a pretty good idea of what we were supposed to do. So it was it was weirdly really easy and organic, and kind of you know came about in a good time frame. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that is there was one intense period of time we spent together, the three of us, where Lynn came down to L.A., and we spent a lot of time in the back room of my house sort of um, finalizing what, you know, the treatment would be, what the actual scenes would be, and, and, and that's where we really started to define the characters, because once we started defining, you know, Anna as a character and, and how we would bounce off of her... Um, who's, she plays my wife in the movie and, and is sort of the third lead in the film. Um, so I think that was important. Two reasons. One, obviously, we were nailing down these story points. It felt very, very real. We were there together. It wasn't just eye chatting on the phone. 
we were there for one reason to work on the movie. But um, you know, secondly, we kind of discovered the best thing that was you know working in our favor in this process was there was no ego. And when you've got an improvised film or you know film with some looseness and some shagginess about how it can be executed, man, that is just like recipe for potential disaster. There's pitfalls everywhere with like. I'm just trying to look funny while I'm acting, or you know, or a director feeling like they have to exact more control over you because like they're not actually writing the dialogue at the time, or there's you know, I mean, it is fraught with peril essentially. And we very quickly discovered, I'd say, in the first three or four hours, um, that like we were in that nice environment where the best idea came to the surface and and won. And whether that was from any any three of us, it didn't matter. And you know, there was. You know, I would throw something out, and I'd be excited about it, and then Josh would, you know, build on it, and then Lynn would make it best, and then we'd be like, "All right, that's the best one. Let's use that, and let's move on." And that was su such a key part to this process. Is just like making a movie is hard enough. You know, the last thing you want to do is get your shit involved in it. Like, just throw your ideas into the mix, let the big ones rise, and then you know, let, let kind of let everything go, and and that defined our process. And and I think part of the thing about this film that that actually made a lot of that stuff feel maybe a little less self-indulgent than sometimes it could be is that is that we started with a premise that was so ridiculous that the experiment of the film was really trying to reverse engineer that into something human um, into something viable that you know we had as much skepticism going in about the concept that that I think a lot of the the audience will and so that really forced us to um, you know to pick the best idea and to own those moments and and make something that uh, that was emotionally viable. Whereas if it if it had been, you know, if it had been lower stakes, yeah, if it had been lower stakes, I, I, I don't think there would have been so much pressure to actually deliver and justify our our story and our actions. Everyone was on high alert for false notes. We really wanted it to be believable. We did, and we didn't know if it was possible, but we really, we really took that challenge up. Um, let's go back to talking about the concept for the film because it is such an outrageous idea. Um, I'm curious to know, and you talk in the notes, and you've talked before um, about this idea of wanting to kind of explore these boundaries of sexual identity. Um, why was that important to you? Yeah, why was that important to you? I mean, I think for myself, personally, I've always been interested in, in people's personal boundaries. I, there was a period of time in my life when I believed that everybody was basically bisexual and you just sort of fall in love with, it's all social stigma, you know, or cultural stigma. Um, and I think that was probably just because I'm basically bisexual, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a, um, I don't live as a bisexual. I have been married and monogamous for many, many years, but... Um, but I could see that at a point in my life I could have easily fallen in love with a woman. Um, and, and sort of coming to terms with the fact that not everybody's like that. <laughs> there, actually, there actually is a, a very broad you know, um, spectrum of, of, of sexual identity boundaries. So that's just something that I've always sort of been interested in in general. But I mean, I really don't think this movie is about that so much. You know, I think it's much more about... Um, I mean, the original concept came from this uh, idea of wanting to... I, a friend of mine, um, who's another filmmaker based in Chicago, Joe Swanberg, 
um, was coming to stay with me in Seattle, and he went to see Hump, which is an actual amateur porn festival in Seattle um, that is featured in this movie. And he could not stop talking for three days about the gay porn that he'd seen. And I thought it was really um, adorable and, uh, and very interesting. And, um, and he's very unselfconscious about, you know, if it had been anybody else, I don't know if they would have done that, but he just kept talking and talking and talking about it. And I started thinking about the relationship between straight guys and gayness and how there is this particular tension, you know, even though it's not cool anymore to be homophobic, you know, thank God. Um, it, and, and so a straight guy could have lots of gay friends, can have, you know, be very progressive about the idea of gayness in general, but still want everybody to know that he is himself straight and that, you know, and that he can reassure himself that he's straight. There just still is this interesting anxiety about that. Um, and I've also witnessed many, many very deep, um, passionate, platonic relationships, you know, friendships between straight men. And there's this under, this sort of homoerotic undercurrent, you know, um, or a potential for one or something. And there's, there's a di little discomfort there too. You know, if it's two straight women who have a friendship, they can just express it a little bit more easily than two straight guys. So I just thought that was really interesting territory. Plus it, it, it you know, it's easy to make them squirm obviously because of, because of that, you know, because of that inherent discomfort. And so it seemed like um, pushing that to the edge, you know, and getting them to get, push themselves to that just, it's, it was ridiculous. I knew it was ridiculous, but it was also just really, I, I was curious to see if it could be done, I, I guess. I also just want to add that, um, y you know, it, it, I, I just wanted to back you up that it's really not a film about sexual politics and that, and that, that the squirminess, like the notion of, of placing that concept on these, t on these two straight guys was really just a conduit into their own fears and their own question about self-identity in, in a much larger sense that, that, you know, sexuality was a good way into it, but, but it's also about, you know, where they are in their lives, being a dude, right. entering your thirties, mm -hmm. trying to become an adult, you know, who you present yourself to the world versus who you actually are. Um, you know, what, what the extent of your friendships are and what they're based on and whether they're based on old notions or, you know, a, a complete newer version of yourself. And, and you know, I, I, I think that kind of dovetails into what we were talking about right at the beginning about the audience for the movie, which is, um, you know, the, the one-line pitch for the movie aside and the poster, which, you know, at some point you have to kind of identi identify what your brand is. Um, so those things are doing that job right now, but at the, the end, at the end of the day, it's a movie about um, you know self-identity and about friendship, and and so that's that's I, I think really why it's appealing to different audiences, and I don't think there's different reasons that it's appealing to different audiences for that. I, I think it's pretty universal thematically. Mm -hmm when you kind of break it down to its core. And it, I mean, something that does not come across at all with the poster is that it's a great date movie. It seems like it's a, just a, 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 for guys, but it's really, I mean, women really love well, it too. Well, you know, guys might be a little intimidated because we do take our shirts off and kind of like, you know, I mean, if I had a date and I walked into a movie, I wouldn't want them to see Mark naked. I mean, because then I'd have to go home and compete against that. It's an excellent point. If you point. weren't you. I think Mark agrees with you. I mean, I don't want to talk about it here, but it's a good point. 
We're gonna we're gonna switch gears and get some questions from the audience after we watch the third clip, which is uh, the basement scene. Do you want to set anything up? Before uh, we do? No. Okay, here it comes. <laughs> Dude, you're not gay. I don't. I don't think I'm gay. I just thought. No, I mean you're pretty solidly not gay. I think. Yeah, I think the same thing about you too. I just. I just. I wish I was more gay. I feel like tomorrow uh, would be more fun. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really short clip. Tiny clips. bite. Tiny. Love them. Where did that line come from? Tomorrow would be more fun. My brain. His head. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant gray matter. We have about 10 minutes, and um, we have time for a few questions. So if you do have a question, raise your hand, and we'll get to a few. I see a couple of hands. So we'll start here in the front row. And uh, wait for the microphone, I was yes. reminded. Right here in the front row. Tell um, us who you are. Uh, my name is Boaz, um, filmmaker as well. Um, did uh, sound present any kind of challenge? Did you guys have to go back and ADR or anything? And did you guys lose anything that you wanted to keep? Or? Again, choosing the right people, man. Boom operating is a highly underrated and, uh, and very sophisticated art form. And we've got, we've got the best. We've got the man. He likes to do it all himself. It's one, he's a one-man machine. He does the sound recording, mixing, and, and the boom operating. Um, we recorded the video to the Panasonic cameras, but he recorded to his own sound to a hard disk recorder, and then we synced it up. We did a double system, just like film. My second feature film, same sound guy, Vinnie Smith, who also did all the music, he did all the sound. Um, he recorded to camera for my second feature and swore that he would never, ever, ever do that again. It just presented all kinds of problems. So, um, and we used very, they had, they had um, lav, lavaliers but we ended up using very very little of it it was sort of like those those were like our backups but it was all the booming man it was incredible it was all booming occasionally there were some planted microphones in the room if and they needed more hands you know yeah, you drill some into the ceiling and things like that That's yeah also we would tape tool. them it's true yeah over in the bedroom scene there were times when we would do that but um and the, the last thing I was going to say was, uh, yeah, there was there was like half. I think we we actually ADR'd a syllable, <laughs> like a single syllable. But um, no, there was really virtually no ADR at all. It was kind of amazing. Yes, over here. Hi, I have a question about how you formulated your ideas collaboratively. Uh, I'm a writer, and it seems like it would be a strong temptation to dip repeatedly into the easiest comedic well of the squirmy male ego. And like, did you have to have discussions about broadening the comedy or resisting we, that temptation sometimes? We really all had the same uh, urge to do the opposite of that. We really didn't. I, I was not setting out to make a comedy, which may, may sound completely disingenuous, but it, it, it's really true. I, I really was just wanting to... Um, plumb the depths of this circumstance, of each circumstance of every scene, to find the, the sort of human truth, knowing full well that there was opportunity there, that, that humor would come, but we were never playing for laughs. I mean, there's, it's never jokey, it's never laughy, I, I hope, I mean, I hope it doesn't seem like we're doing that. It's never I'm just slapsticky. too damn funny. And yeah, it just and it happens. just it just happens. Um, but truly, everybody was always playing it very straight and very earnest. So. There's been a comparison with this film to Apatow's movies, and I love Judd Apatow, and I think that what he does is 
genius and he takes this very crass sort of genre and he's brought humanity to it. But I really think this is different. It's very different because because his are still, you know, definitely comedies and mine, this this film in particular is not um, is is not just a, a, a sort of a, it's not a farce, it's not a comedy, it's something different. Un- unless we sell more tickets by saying it's a farce, in which case it is totally a farce. That's right, yeah. It's all about the ticket sales. That's what you want it to be. That's what you want. Other questions from the audience? Um, before we wrap up, I want to ask what you all are up to, besides getting the word out about this film opening July 10th, uh, what else you're up to, each of you, what you're working on, what you're hoping to work on, that sort of thing. I'm about to jump into a web series, a production of a web series. Craig, <coughs> Craig Brewer, who uh, directed Hustle and Flow a few years back, um, thought of this idea. It's his brainchild, and he created, it's actually online now through mtv.com. It's called $5 Cover Memphis. And um, they want to do one in every in a bunch of other cities. And so What's David the Gale, the... and David Gale is the producer at MTV. Saw that Hump Day at, at Sundance. He came to me and said I, he thought I might be a good fit for the Seattle version. And what I'm doing is I'm going around and finding local bands in Seattle. I've put together 12 of 13 of them, and I'm writing storylines. They're sort of based on their actual lives, and these non-actors are going to be playing themselves in these little storylines. And then there's musical performance also organically um, interwoven. So it's and we shoot it with two cameras, documentary style. It's improvised instead of <coughs> written, you know, dialogue. So it's 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 a really good fit for me. And we're going to be shooting that in August, and it'll be online by December. So that's what I'm doing next. And I'm I'm playing around. I'm looking at a bunch of different uh, movie uh, movie projects, but I haven't decided on one yet. Cool. Either of you? Yeah. Um, I just directed my first big movie with my brother Jay. Um, you guys for, finished shooting it? We're finished shooting. We're in post. It's um, it's a movie f- that we wrote and directed for Fox Searchlight, who's kind of like the best at uh, the little movies that the studios call them, but I call them huge movies. Um, and um, you know, it's a, it's sort of what we've always done. It's another personal movie. It just kind of has movie stars in it. So that's the difference, I guess. Um, Who's in the film? It's uh, John C. Riley, Jonah Hill, Marissa Tomei, and Catherine Keener. I don't know if you've heard of any. And, of those you know, guys. a couple of guys. I mean, they're they're, they're up and comers. Um, and uh, then I I was lucky enough to to be asked by Noah Baumbach to be in his new movie uh, called Greenberg with Ben Stiller and my friend Greta Gerwig, who I directed in Baghead which was really cool. Um, and then I'm going to be in this uh, new TV series. I can't say too much about it. It hasn't been announced, but it's something that's coming up in the fall that I'll be acting in. So balance, still balancing the acting and the directing. Still balancing the acting and directing thing. And, and, um, and also I have an 18-month-old daughter. And um, so, yeah, that and trying to find some time for therapy. So, Good luck with that. Thanks. Joshua and um, I just I, I finished shooting I, I I'm doing this uh, HBO show called Hung which uh, I do kind of the second half of the season in that and um, that's starting this weekend isn't it starts Hung? this weekend tomorrow uh, Sunday yep yep Sunday uh, Thomas Jane Jane Adams awesome and uh, I'm producing a movie later on this summer based on a TC Boyle story called The Lie um, and then directing something in the fall. I want to wrap up with, you know, you guys are all working in so many different types of projects, acting, producing, directing, big film, small film, web. Um, there's so much talk now about sort of where f- 
film is going on the independent side and stuff that's being made um, sort of, you know, on the, on, the, on the edges, on the margins, or not quite at the studio level, but at, at some of the smaller, you know, specialty and, and smaller studio companies. I mean, what do you guys think? If you were to... Where, where do you sort of see all of this going? I mean, does it seem... Does it seem daunting? Does it seem exciting? Does it seem... I mean, there's so much change happening in where movies are seen, how they're being seen, how they're being made. Um, it's very easy to get caught up in the downturn, so to speak, but it seems like you guys are very busy. So, you know... It, I think it, Ted Hope's leading a good charge right now uh, in general. About You know, there's a lot of rhetoric going around, but the basics of it are um, keep your shit cheap so that you can all make a profit and everybody can have a job. Um, and I'm a real big fan of that. You know, it's like, you know, don't fly first class when you're making an independent film about, you know, people who are getting their feelings hurt. First class is for explosive movies in the summer that do well and we know do well. Like, for, this, for the little movies, like, let's be smart. Let's just take this thing and put it in the right box and it, and it will survive, you know? I mean, when my brother and I released The Puffy Chair, you know, we... It only made $250,000 at the box office, but it was, everybody looks at it as a success today because we spent $70,000 marketing it. And it got out there and got great reviews. And then on DVD and TV, it's, now it's made over a million dollars. And so this is a very successful movie that, you know, if, if we tried to put it out with a lot of money, everyone looked at it as a failure and it wouldn't have had its life. So I'm all about just downsizing it right now and like just being a little humble. And yet you just made your however many millions of dollars. I did make a however many millions of dollars. But at the same time, I mean, my Searchlight movie was a $6.5 million movie. But a John C. Riley, Jonah Hill, Marissa Tomei movie, that's a $25 million movie. And most studios might have paid that, you know. But we kept this thing cheap. And so now, literally, the day we started shooting, the studio made its money back just by the promise of them on that DVD cover in the international market. So on a larger scale, it is safe filmmaking. So. And you and you couldn't have no, and you couldn't have gotten there. What I was going to point out is you couldn't have gotten to that point had you not done what you did with Puppy Chair and Backhead. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's a great it's certainly a great way to get started. You know. Yeah. Good. Well, I want to thank our three guests for spending some time with us at the Apple Store, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for coming, everyone. July tenth, New York City Hump Day. What's up? What's up?